0: Hey, hun, we're a team. I move up, you move up, right to the top of the old pyramid. Slow oh, well, no, right? down, Come on, now you're scaring the girls.
1: Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the thoughts to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only one to know that you're not sated until you're quaded. I am Jeb Lund, someone who has also been intimidated by Hall of Fame offensive tackle Anthony Munoz mid-enema, and I'm here with the best co-pilot I ever saw, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello. How you
2: doing? Um, I have to urinate, but you know, (laughs) fine, same. You have permission to go in the suit. Yeah, well, (laughs) I'd rather apologize than ask permission.
1: There's no way you're really going to fully believe me on this, but I actually wrote this down before we did all the pre-recording jibber-jabber that went on for very long. I I literally wrote this out. It says, now, Sarah, there's a demon that lives on the air. They say whoever flirts with it loses interest. It lives at one hour on the meter, 3,600 seconds, where the podcast can no longer get out of its own way. They call it the time limit. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to blow past that this week, do you
2: feel? I don't think so, but that really relies on you because I feel like you have a um, master's thesis <laughs> waiting for us all. And I just have some, you know,
1: <laughs> bullshitty things to say like usual. So let's find out. So before we hurdle past the time limit, though, I want to check in, see how we're doing on our mutual attempts to set aside time for the Renaissance in our downtime. Were you able to to catch a minute, catch a whole episode? Um,
2: I was not. It's Dennis Quaid's fault. Here's why. Dennis Quaid, as the internet knows, recently adopted a cat called Dennis Quaid because you you kind of have to, like, you can't be that guy who's like, that's cute. No, thanks. Who knows what's going to happen to the cat? So
1: uh, I The second cat you can. Huh? Because then that's, well, that's just copycat behavior, right? For (laughs) that. The first one you can do because it comes by it honestly. Right.
2: Or like if there's a cat named Randy Quaid, you're like, uh, you know <laughs> new, new cat Just is? always lick at its own butthole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that sets it apart from other cats. Certainly. <laughs> um, so here's the point. I was all set to listen to the Renaissance, and then I disappeared down this like petfinder.org hole looking for a cat named Sarah Bunting, which is not totally impossible because there was a character on Downton Abbey named Sarah Bunting. Sometimes these rescue organizations name whole litters of kittens thematically. Right. So, I mean, maybe they ran out of Downton's, Grantham's. I don't even remember their names. I only watch that show because everyone's like, oh, like on Downton. And I'm like, no, I'm like a foot taller than her. (laughs) Anyway, that's why. Then it was like 2.30 in the morning, and then I just ran out of time.
1: Sure. No, okay, I have a question for this, but I, I will, before we get to it, like, you know, I gave it a couple episodes, but, uh, you know, I, I'd already seen Gosford Park written uh-huh. by the same guy exploring the same themes, and uh-huh. Gosford Park was done after two hours, and it was yeah. great. And this had the potential to be as something that the entire internet was celebrating on Twitter at the time, something that really sucked eventually. So I just that never was did it.
2: an absolutely prescient call, and um, <laughs> here's the question though: if there were like Lord Lund on there, are, are you going to try it anyway? I felt like I had no choice.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely would have taken a whack at it. Well, that's that's my follow up then. Like, how far were you prepared to go if you found a cat with your name? Pretty far. How how far was your search radius? Was it like the whole of Petfinder or?
2: Well, I mean, I think we're all in this situation right now, having um, adopted a dog who was like put on a transport from Baltimore to New Jersey and we had to, you know, ride out to Teaneck and it was a whole thing pretty far. I I would, I would drive, I guess. What would my radius be? I'd go 250, 300.
1: I I was thinking like, maybe I could do as long as I only had to camp one night overnight, I could go do it. So like, realistically, like as far as Wisconsin. here okay i mean that's really looking for an excuse to get out of the house like it's i need a COVID venture kind of thing (laughs) right we've chewed some time i can see the the clock (laughs) so my denissance thing listeners of the podcast will know that something bad happened to my my headphones i got some new earbuds i was psyched to listen but last week was the rnc and i got asked by the new republic to go cover it in person with adam weinstein a friend of mine who's done a bonus podcast with me and uh we've just written a lot of the same places we both were at gawker he wrote for mother jones uh we've both been in the new republic anyway uh we were gonna go do the outside thing and uh and get color and hope our masks didn't get ripped off and we didn't get mowed down by uh, cars or you know gunfire and then that got canceled. So we were going to do like an every night, I think, like post game thing. And I got like super psyched out about that. Like, oh, my God, I, I can't fuck this up. It's going to be streaming. Because you write the article, right? You ask a stupid question. You just don't include your question. You write the article. You write the the quote or the answer. But like I was going to be on TV and talking and, and ultimately it wound up only being a one day like seminar thing. Uh, <laughs> but like I was just like vibrating at a really unnatural frequency all week. And I was not prepared to listen to a laconic Texas accent taken or easy for me. I I needed to listen to somebody who's going to be outraged on my behalf. Somebody who's already going to be as wound up as I felt.
2: Well, and also this is someone whose next big project is playing Ronald Reagan. So maybe
1: that's not the headspace for you last week. Yes. Speaking of people who imaginarily flew planes in World War II... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, that segue. Are you okay? I hit the topic barrier. Yeah. No, but so these guys are pretending to be people who flew planes in World War II, and the president did that. He just wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Cute camper van Beethoven's sweethearts somewhere in here. <laughs> so we watched 1983's The Right Stuff, which I have. Uh, you, you're worried that I'm going to have a dissertation about this. I will say I'm I have not a very worried. personal. worried. You're t- I have, okay. I have a very personal relationship to it. It is the last movie I saw in fact the only movie I can remember seeing with my grandfather who was a pilot in the second world war the only grandfather I got to meet the other one was a pilot in the second world war and became a test pilot actually and was killed in an accident when my mom was 16 so I never got to meet him but um I I got to see this in the theater in Portland. Also, speaking of war zones, but uh, I went to go see my grandpa because he lived up in Portland, and uh, we went to the theater. And I didn't really understand this movie because I was six. Yeah, I was just going to ask
2: how old you were. Okay,
1: I understood breaking the sound barrier, and I knew some of the astronaut stuff. But what was striking to me was when the lights came up. My grandfather, who was you know Midwestern Norwegian man, he was sitting there rigid with his face like glass because he'd wept so much it was just this sheen of tears on him and I remember just being like awestruck at that and then he died very shortly thereafter and and so like it's just having like that pilot lore growing up of uh-huh. of you know this is what your granddad's did you know my uh, my mother's father was a p-51 mustang bomber escort like if you've read catch-22 if it is a city mentioned in catch-22 as absolute shit to fly over he was in a very small plane going as slow as possible next to a big target over that city and so like the resonance of this of like this this kind of wild cowboys of the air thing it was really resonant especially because that was my mother's father had that sort of experience he was a screw up in high school and went off to fly planes in the war because there was a war on and let you fly a plane and he loved it. And eventually he ranked up to lieutenant colonel and the Air Force said, we have too many of these people threatened to ground them. So they all quit. And that's how he became a test pilot in California where he was uh, killed. But he was kind of of that last generation of the guys who just kind of got to go up and see what they could do with a hurtling piece of machinery before it became corporatized. Before it had p r before there was suddenly a lot of money that everybody had to be accountable for, and so this movie, in a way, is sort of a for me witness I witnessed like a celebration of like what he got to do, but also the death of that kind of epoch in exploration and like individual achievement
2: i uh did not have grandfathers who <laughs> had any relationship to this i i did have grandfathers um yeah my my father's father uh died well he was actually my age and it was like just one of those freak things but the other one was a colonel in uh the united states army but he was a dentist so maintenance of foxy grins is about as good as i can do in terms of relating it to uh the colonel but um I have very distinct memories of this movie coming to HBO finally, and my dad, who was like super into space stuff generally, wasn't in, he drove a tank in the National Guard, Mm -hmm. mostly because he was pretty sure they weren't sending tanks to the jungle. Um, And my mother- Kent State, sure, but- Yeah, well, I mean, apparently that's what they trained for on weekends in the 60s, was not the jungle, but- Urban riot control, retaking Um, Cornell. Yeah, with a well, and he was Pennsylvania National Guard, so they would go out to Gettysburg, and it was like a bunch of kids from the sticks outside of Wilkes Barre with yeah riot gear, and it went about the way it's going now. Anyway, he was super excited for this to come to HBO, and I distinctly remember that they put an intermission, which I think they also did in the theater. There was like yeah. a 10 or 15 minute pause in the middle. So you could go pee and get more candy. And they left it in on HBO knowing somehow that everyone in my family would have to pee. And also that my parents really didn't understand how to operate the VCR ever. So it, it, <laughs> I remembered that. And I really remembered um Like, I had seen the whole thing a couple of times, but it had been a long time. But the the parts that really stick with me are the Jaeger parts, for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. And uh, it's really a pretty movie to look at, still quite striking. And at three hours and 13 minutes, like, I didn't really feel that. I'm always the one who's like, why can't this be 75 minutes? I got shit to do. But you don't really feel the length of this, I don't think. That's what she said. Excuse me? That's what she said.
1: Yeah. I mean, having fanboyed a whole bunch, uh, at least, you know, for personal reasons, it probably wouldn't be surprising that it went by that quickly for me, but uh It long ago, you know, I have it on DVD and it was one of those things that just sort of got left in the five DVD changer that I would tend to watch like late at night when drunk, like, you Uh know, and having a a sandwich and a glass of water before going to bed because it didn't matter where I left it off. Yeah. And so I just seen it over and over. And then eventually it kind of got to the point where I just sort of like watch bits of it on YouTube. And so it had been ages since I had watched it all the way through, even though I've seen it like just umpteen times and like all the parts I hadn't seen kind of leapt out and i'd forgotten a lots of bits of of humor and humanizing especially the moment when jaeger kind of chastens the other test pilots to feel pity and and kinship with the the mercury seven astronauts like i'd forgotten that bit was in there but like it really did race by and i think it's probably because of that that leavening tone of like it just as soon as it becomes a bit too much on like meaning then there's a bit of satire to take you Away from the, the kind of the weight of that.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, no, we have a um, clip that is like just one of my favorite moments from any film. And I had completely forgotten about it. But we'll we'll get back to that later. I wanted to ask
1: you if this is a Poppy Fields movie for you. Where I run at the german line and then get gunned down and then it fades and then wow, there's the bbc no.
2: <laughs> no,
1: no uh this is a term i've been using for a while and then
2: on my uh, old blog tomato nation i had like the couch of fame basically uh it's a wizard of oz poppy field reference where you just like wander into the movie and then you are becalmed by it even if you own it in other media even if you know that it's the bolderized you know forget you melon farmer version it's one of those movies like a league of their own is like that for me casino even though with commercials it's like 17 hours long and it's not even that good it just has that like sunday afternoon like you look around and you still have one leg in your tights well maybe not you i don't know your life you've one (laughs) leg in your tights and you're like oh yeah and here's the part where she's like bumping along the wall of her motel we're almost done then i can go out back when you could go out yeah it was a it was a different world anyway is this like that for you that if you're dialing past it you're just like oh I'll watch this until the next commercial and then an hour later you're still there
1: if I, I've half jetted out of my uh pajamas on the couch and yeah, yeah sure like this or like Dr. Strangelove or you know like Amadeus or I don't know, like a lot of the ones that I can watch like at, a, at the drop of a hat aren't on TV a lot. So yeah. not because I'm like, I don't even own a TV. I do. I have three TVs, but oh my god, one of them sucks though. But <laughs> one of them I got free. Can you imagine if I found cable. out in the
2: middle of this podcast that you didn't own a TV and I had to like audibly <laughs> storm off in disgust? That would really be a pity.
1: So the plot of The Right Stuff <laughs> legendarily it isn't. William Goldman, the uh, the famous screenwriter, came to such loggerheads with director uh, Philip Kaufman that he quit. And uh, Kaufman himself has, has later celebrated it as a, uh, a movie without a plot because the person you spend the first 30 minutes with just disappears for the next 30. Yeah. Uh, and disappears for all but maybe 15 minutes of the remainder of the movie. That movie, however, just from start to finish is best we can do in a short bit before we talk in even more detail about it. The molasses tones of Levon Helm tell us how men came to Morocco Airfield in the high desert of California in the late 1940s to break the sound barrier. We meet Chuck Yeager and his wife Glennis and the crowd at Pancho's and, of course, a mystical undertaker—not the mystical undertaker who is guided around by Paul Bearer and a, a uh, an urn. He goes, "Ooh!" No, that different undertaker. <laughs> we witness Chuck break the sound barrier just as the Iron Curtain closes down, and we have a PR blackout on this moment. From then on, Jaeger and Scott Crossfield trade speed records. Finally, Russia's chief engineer launches Sputnik, launching the American space race and Russian panic. And we see the at least about space and we see the political and PR forces that shape the response. President Eisenhower wants test pilots, but the engineers and scientists want nothing but college boys who can do a more educated job of reading the dials of the rockets that they want to put them in. Jaeger and the other pilots are priced out both in terms of the fact that Jaeger doesn't have a college degree, but also because NASA ultimately throws all its weight behind the rocket program, not the manned space flight program, which ultimately, like later in in the space shuttle, we see it it kind of come back. But at this point, Jaeger and the pilots like Crossfield are being priced out. Crossfield also can't get in because he's a civilian, not a a military guy. But I I think that's in the book. Anyway, uh, in come the fresh-faced volunteers for a harrowing but very funny training regimen that narrows them down to the Mercury 7 astronauts. Uh, We see them get sold to America as this great PR launch as our greatest pilots, but uh, their nature as pilots ultimately leads them to rebel against being the college boys who can just read dials, aka spam in a can, as they try to take control of the bureaucracy and the spacecraft that is sending them up and reassert themselves as men who have the right stuff. So we watch Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, John Glenn, and their wives uh, as each men go up in turn. And then the movie eventually peaks narratively, aeronautically, and spiritually as we watch the Mercury 7 astronauts inside a Houston sports arena being faded and fed smoked meat and laden with gifts.
0: And here I am. I got me twenty-five dollars a year for a magazine contract. Got a free house with all the furnishes. Got me a Corvette. Got a free lunch from one end of America to the other. And I ain't even been up there yet. Yeah. I noticed that. Oh, you noticed that? huh? You noticed I hadn't been up there yet? <laughs> well, I guess they're saving the best for last.
1: <laughs> While back at Edwards, a solitary Chuck Yeager tries to set a flight record that nobody even cares about anymore. And Gordo Cooper puts down his barbecue, struggles to describe the greatest pilot he's ever seen just days before finally becoming it himself.
2: Yeah. For,
1: for a movie without a plot, I think you did great. Look, I got it shorter than three hours. Whether we can beat an hour, we still don't know. Uh, (laughs) Contemporary reviews of it were very favorable. But uh, how did you feel about it?
2: I mean, I don't think that, like, I don't think it's fair to be like, this doesn't have a plot when you're talking about this particular subject that is based on this new journalism classic, I guess. Like, I prefer the film, but... That's me and a certain relationship I have with Tom Wolf that is not always positive.
1: As far as Tom Wolf goes, this is good, Tom Wolfe.
2: Yeah, sure. I was in the middle of the Bonfire of the Vanities when I saw the movie. So that's, I mean, that's just been stuck crosswise in my throat for 30 years. Anyway, I thought it was really good. And I thought it was also like you get something different from it every time you watch it, or at least I have historically Yeah. Like, I just don't have that much detail because this is one of those stories that I think was told the only way it could have been told perfectly the first time, if that makes any sense. Like, it's three hours, 13 minutes because it has to be. It stars these people because that's what the universe wanted. I just feel like this is sort of a foreordained project. But I also, you know, it's existed for most of my life and been acknowledged as a classic. So maybe I'm bringing that into it. But I was surprised at how much humor is in it. And Apollo 13 being, for good or ill, one of my Poppy Fields movies, like wherever I come in, it's like, well, I guess we have to, I guess we have to wait this out until they come back on comms at the very end it's not like i don't know what happens but i have to watch it every time this is so much more textured unless ron howard of course but the humor was surprising to me do you mind if i play this clip of uh shearer and goldblum like please trying to pitch eisenhower on using married (laughs) acrobats It's so fucking good
1: ah These people, of course, very experienced in handling their own machinery. And they already have their own helmets. I don't know if that's a factor. And, as you'll see, they're (laughs) quite comfortable in conditions of flame. Now, uh, this is uh, personnel who have very well-developed equilibrium. Good middle ear. Also very nice people. (laughs) Very easy to work with. And with some work, doctor, they could be very responsive to orders. Now, this was my first choice. Take a look at the man with the hood on. You see, because he works without benefit of eyesight, his other senses have become acutely sharpened. We
0: feel that once in space, there'll be very little need for eyeballing at any rate. Now, the, uh, cannibal effect you were talking about, Doctor, uh, we're basically doing some thinking about putting a couple into
1: orbit. Uh, possibly adds emotional stability. This individual combines many of the plus factors that we've mentioned. Uh, ease with flames comfort at heights and uh, agility in the splashdown phase also he is available as of the 15th no (laughs) no no i want test pilots
2: i just love that the the little side like the middle ear (laughs) fucking gold (laughs) i like that your first clip is a visual montage (laughs) well look (laughs) it's still funny to me because of the little asides he is available (laughs) as of the 15th like i i don't know yes it's better with the visuals but not that much better just that yeah i don't know like the intrusion of sort of civilians trying to help and this culture clash at nasa and then eisenhower who's just like dotage grandpa like no, i want test pilot like okay
1: t- take it easy I don't know if you were getting to the point of going like, well, I think this movie was, you know, it was always in the rock and then Philip Kaufman chipped it away and it is just, you know, this cohesive thing. I mean, there are a couple of things I've always kind of quibbled a little bit with with it about, but like I generally think, it, you know, it is just a masterful movie. I think Ebert named it his number two of the 80s. We're not really like trying to polish up like a, an underrated film here it yeah. just didn't do well at the box office like that's the only thing that went wrong you know posterity thinks it's awesome but the first year not so much okay they can well live with but
2: it. i mean three plus hours like that's just tough to make money on for movie houses because you can't turn over the theater as many times i mean now
1: of course right. that's irrelevant but right. it, i think that was a tough sell You know, I don't think you will see an epic like this just again. I mean, I can't imagine ever making an epic about America again that is this scabrous and contemptuous of of like American stupidity in some parts and excess, like the monolithic way in which the press follows these guys and redigests just. PR feed I mean these things are, are very negative and, and like part of the reason why they're there is like to get you to make it only three hours and 10 minutes like there's no way to really articulate the bureaucratic idiocy of like every single department trying to dip their toe in the water and make this project do this or that and so he's like well fuck it I'll have Goldblum and Harry Shearer ad-lib comedy bits to show how stupid this could be and like I can't imagine seeing a movie that makes takes that chance let alone having like well there's an undertaker that, you know, is spiritually there, like all the time, it haunts yeah, the movie, like
2: it's- a scarecrow. the I yeah. mean, another interesting thing, I think it has a really good ear within itself for how long certain sequences should go on. I think it's really smart about that. And most of the other examples that I would point to are also visual. Like there's a sequence at the end where Jaeger has crashed, and all you really see is this like diagonal, boiling black smoke. And Mm -hmm. it's timed exactly, it's just timed exactly. And where that took place, like before the editing room, in the editing room, it doesn't matter. Like it it has a good sense of how much of this is visual and how much of this is the words and how much of this is the people and the faces that you're looking at and how important Mm -hmm. this is to American audiences, like sense of themselves in this program. They do devote an almost, I don't know what the word is. Let's say it's a noteworthy, since I'm noting it, amount of time to Grissom and his sort of struggles and the hatch. Mm-hmm. But then it stops before his death, although that's mentioned at the end. What did you think of the, of its sort of like preoccupation with his, whatever, that Donnie Brooke? And the great Veronica Cartwright being like, "No, Jackie, <laughs> poor kid." Yeah,
1: there's so many little things. I mean, like the way that they treat the wives in in this does so much with as little time as they, as uh, Kaufman and the screenplay give it. Really encapsulating a lot of stuff that the book gets at, but the um, the the movie does a lot of like playful and kind of cruel inversions in it. So Jaeger winds up being supplanted by the Mercury 7 because they have a PR machine and he doesn't because at the time that he does the famous thing, it is harmful to whatever we consider our security interests to be. And then for Grissom, you have these guys who make their bones flying something that is expected to be flawed. And it's fine. And in fact, their job is just to be expert at handling something presumed flawed and telling you why it's flawed. And the second time that anybody ever uses a device, a flaw is detected and they don't believe a guy whose entire job is to communicate that to them. Right. By leaning on it, I, one of the criticisms of the movie at the time and, and retrospectively until I think they finally um, did more forensic work on Grissom's capsule and I think Came as close to exonerating him as you can be exonerated. I think this is a few years ago. And I'm not, I might be wrong. So people are welcome to add us and whatever. No, but, I, um, I think
2: that's correct because I happen to be in the middle of a extremely dense Brian Burrow book called um, Dragonfly about various mere disasters in the late 90s. And mm-hmm. he has a whole subchapter on this and how everything that happened to Grissom, including his demise, informs NASA public policy, like public-facing policy and announcements to this day. Anyway, sorry. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, anyway, so like I think by making it, I don't know, just sort sort of horrifically ambiguous, you can't whitewash it with just the heroism. And so there has to be a counterpoint somewhere. And by like making it ambiguous, it's wrenching because that has to be, I mean, that's how America had to wrestle and deal with Gus Grissom for, yeah. for decades. Like, did he fuck up? You know, is one of our heroes that life happened to
0: just once you don't screw the pooch
1: that the contracting process happened to well and that
2: there so much time is spent i think the script is very empathetic and generous to mrs grissom where mm-hmm. you know these band members are sort of just like cutting in front of them and they're like there's nobody else there it's the grissoms and the band and like one guy with an instamatic and she's like no you know, no trip to the White House, no Jackie, and the fact is the contract that he had she gets the shit end of it every time,, mm-hmm. and she's I think they think supposed to content herself with the fact that he didn't die, and she's like, no that's that's not how that worked, but I think for the wives, that is how it worked, and um their ability to illustrate that fairly elliptically most of the time, I mean, there is one um scene where all the wives are sort of they're at a barbecue and all the wives are inside in these this shitty housing
1: I thought I was the only one who had these nightmares <sighs> yeah me
0: too nobody ever wants to talk about anything around here everybody's always trying to you know, maintain an even strain well you uh, marry a fighter jock and you marry the military. I'll tell you one thing, though. The military owes me for all this. One day I expect the military to make good.
2: And then they cut out to Gordo, like, holding up a flaming weenie. <laughs> and it's just like, they're just like, God.
1: You know? well, and his nickname is Hot Dog. Yeah. And it's an incinerated hot dog on two metal spikes.
2: Mm-hmm. And he's like, eh? And she's like, fuck yeah. you. I don't know.
1: Yeah, And and the movie has underlined this by, like, these little snippets of dialogue at Pancho's, the, the place where all the test pilots drink, where, like, it was, you know, 60 test pilots were killed in the span of two months. Like, you had not accounting for actual combat deaths. If you were a pilot, just because that didn't count as, like, an accidental death, the rate of accidental death if you were a fighter pilot, if you were a test pilot, was 26%. So there's less than a one in... Sorry, there's a greater than one in four chance that when you go up. So there's this moment of, like, he's just leering like a goon as, like, his, you know, namesake is incinerated on a stick in front of him. And he's just going, like, (laughs) at his wife.
2: Yeah. And then she's like, you know where I don't need to be is here. Bye. She, like, takes the kids and goes moves back in with her parents. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good for you. Like, I don't need to be here picking you up with a sponge when that happens. Goodbye. You chose this. I didn't. So...
1: Just before I forget, on the contemporary review note, like I said, Ebert loved it. It has like a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, everybody is just sort of praising it in different ways. But Pauline kale in The New Yorker really did not like it. Oh, and, well. I mean, she admits that parts of it are very good. But also, I think part of it is she really missed the point. Uh, in one respect. But uh, she had some notes that I think you might agree with, though, just just to start us off. She says, Sam Shepard isn't merely willing to be used as an icon. He uses himself as an icon as if he saw no need to act and he can't resonate. He isn't alive. The movie is more than a little skewed. It is Kaufman and Tom Wolfe's dreamy view of the nonchalant Jaeger set against their satirical view of Henry Luce's walking apple pies. This epic has no coherence, no theme to hold it together, except the tacky idea that Americans can't be true, modest heroes anymore. And Blue Lives Matter. I mean, I don't know. What, what is her deal here? I mean, I, yeah, just,
2: I think if you I think if you insist on like a coherent
1: plot, well, yeah, you're right.
2: She misses the point um,
1: willfully, I would say. It really just seems like kind of a, a cranky conservative review of it because she later adds counterculture gags are used for a sort of reverse jingoism. When the scientists get together to celebrate their victories, they sing in German. And, like, I mean, I kind of can't help but underline here that scientists definitely did sing in German, some problematic, not like just traditional German songs, but from the places they used to work. Like, that factually happened. So Pauline Kael's like, well, this, this movie doesn't like America. It's like, lady, read the book it was based on. Come on.
2: Yeah. I don't get that from the movie. Maybe I'm not well enough versed, but that's not the point of the movie, though. It's interpreting the book and also interpreting what happened with a more cynical I than Life Magazine might have at the time, but that's what you would expect from a film, no?
1: I don't know if I mean if if it just hit a particular political button with her, or maybe she read some of the comments from some of the astronauts who felt that the movie was trivializing the people they worked with, especially the Germans. But like again, Werner von Braun bombed London using slave labor. Well, um, uh... I don't know. Open your own fucking pizzeria then. (laughs) (laughs) right um she writes according to wolf the right stuff is quote the uncritical willingness to face danger and that's not it at all like if you're going to quote tom wolf you need to get it right and he very explicitly says actually in defining the right stuff it obviously it involved bravery but it was not bravery in the simple sense of being willing to risk your life and then he goes on to tie it to The idea seemed to be that any fool could risk their lives if that was all that was required, just as any fool could throw away his life in the process. No, the idea here in the all-encompassing fighter jock fraternity, that's my paraphrase, Quote, seem to be that a man should have the ability to go up in a hurtling piece of machinery and put his hide on the line and have the moxie, the reflexes, the experience, the coolness to pull it back in the last yawning moment and then go up again the next day and the next day and every next day, even if the series should prove infinite and ultimately in its best expression to do so in a cause that means something to thousands, to a people, to a nation, to humanity, to God. Like, keep reading, Pauline. Yeah. It's the same paragraph. It's also page 33, I might add. (laughs) Anyway, that's my crankiness. I don't need to be defensive for the movie's sake anymore. Did you have something that you wanted to get to before we moved on to the actual ratings?
2: Um, well, once again, it's a visual thing. Uh, you're welcome. I didn't pull a clip of this because it's just <laughs> a guy pressing ignition over and over again. And, you know, rockets just blowing up on the launch pad, tipping over, or going straight 90 degrees to one side. Everyone's like, yay. And then Ooh, just over and over again. The editing is flawless. The casting of this guy who is, looks very <laughs> lurchy is amazing, and there's one towards the end of the sequence where like it gets up, and he's like, "Yay!" And then it slides back down and explodes, and he's like, Ugh. and he just looks very sort of beetle browed and depressed by the entire project. Um, I don't know about humor always, but there is wit and elision, and this, you know. Like, everybody always likes to say, like, they had to get Apollo 13 around the back end of the moon and back here using less computing power than, like, in a flip phone. And mm-hmm. I think it's occasionally salutary to be reminded just how hard and also fucking crazy this was. Like, it it mostly worked out and unified in a nation, I guess. But I think this movie does that well to remind us like as crazy as all these schemes were to assassinate castro this is the same kind of craziness it just looked cooler and also worked
1: out better it's it's very much like watching a nation be in its 20s it's like it doesn't know (laughs) what it can't do (laughs) (laughs) and it's gonna break a lot of shit (gasps) It's going to have a lot of headaches the next
2: morning. I mean, uh, (laughs) yeah, just throw out everything I said and use that because that's exactly what it's like.
1: I give that synopsis a 10. Thank (sighs) you. A lot of the things I like about this are visual too. And and that actually kind of gets at, I think, just how deftly Kaufman made this movie because one of the most hilarious and and, and, and enraging and, well, there they go again and heartbreaking refrains in the book is because we're America and our rockets always blow up. yeah. And Wolf just keeps using that. You know, he's like, and and, well, here was the problem with this. Everybody was gung-ho about this project, but there was this one problem because of this and because we're America and our rockets blow up. And the way that that winds up happening is like this almost slapstick bit. You do need to know, you have to be reminded that these guys were put on something that we used to bomb London with, <laughs> and, yeah. and they were put on the very top of it <laughs> and then sent to space. I mean, like it there is on some level, like, yeah, it's slapstick, but how else are you gonna kind of convey, like, well, the we're America and our rockets blow up? And similarly, like they visually, and there's no way to really describe this, uh, the book actually has the perfect phrasing for it. And I just wanted to uh to quote this, describing how they they portray almost all the women, uh, talking about Alan Shepard's wife on the day that he's going to uh be the first person set into space American set into space
0: Gordo I have to urinate urinate no.
1: and said Louise hadn't even had all that much opportunity to sit in front of the television set and let the tension build she had gotten up before dawn in the dark to fix breakfast for everybody who was staying in the house and then there was the whole business of fixing coffee and whatnot for all the other good folks as they arrived until before she knew it she was caught up in the same psychology that works at awake she was suddenly the central figure in a wake for my husband. In his hour of danger, however, rather than in his hour of death. It's free. It's open house. Anybody can come on in and gawk. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to convey the reality of, of military wives stuff in this really quickly. But that is a sort of just a running theme of the book. And, and so you see especially like the one really winning kind of family moment is John Glenn basically telling his wife to tell Lyndon Johnson to go fuck himself if he wants to come into the house and talk to her, which was true. (laughs) Yeah. And and,
2: uh, Johnson is in the limo like, isn't there anybody here who can manage a housewife? And
1: it's like, Jesus. But it's true. He he was stymied. He had to just go away because she she just said no. Yeah. Because she got to. That was the one thing she could control. Like if she was the hostess, the wake was going to go off the way she wanted. So my quip got a 10. The movie, what's the rating? I'm going to say nine. I'm about there. Just uh, I don't know if I can do a 10. I just always want to reserve 10 for some like magical moment. The one thing for me that always holds it back is the fact that um, the guy who is like the wised up CIA liaison guy starts the movie as like a stupid journalist and, you know, it, it, not knowing why there would be national security concerns. And he says,
0: the Russians, they're our allies.
1: Oh God. And then the next time you see him, he's the smartest guy in the room. For oh the rest yeah. Of the Isn't movie. that uh, miles Drentel of 30 something. I'm pretty sure it is. I believe so. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I should um, mark this down for containing Scott Pollan, AKA professor Corey Randall of the fictional California university in the 90210 verse as um, Deke. Deke Slayton. Yes. Thank you. Someone should do a ranking of all the Deke Slaytons of TV and film. But yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable at a nine. I think it does have some things that if offered the chance, I might change, but I won't be. And I'm content with
1: that. Okay. Now, the problem is we have to talk about Dennis Quaid, who's in quite a bit of this movie. And we have to figure out his degree of quadiosity, his Quaid qua Quaid. It's a number thing, but you know, if you want to preface it with your long explanation of how you get to the number thing, that would sound like me. So I, I can't really fault you for that.
2: I mean, this is by far the quadiest we've seen him. It is impossible to imagine somebody else playing gordo. It's almost like they were like, get us a Dennis Quaid type, although that's not like that's obviously not what happened, but like in reviews of stuff he did in the next year, that's always the parenthetical, and he's always gordo. Mm-hmm. like the right stuff's gordo cooper like okay i mean he's so quaidy like this is why he was cast in inner space i think this is why we think of him the way we do it all this is like foundational quaid qua quaid with that said he is not in the entire movie like if we were doing a sam shepherd in full that would be different um I think this is a pretty similarly foundational Ed Harris role. But um, yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, this is really, really Quaidy. He does the grin like constantly. He's that um, arrogant, but not like not completely unlikable about it. He like literally has that fighter pilot cockiness because that's what he is. It's hard to imagine a quaidier role, although I can. So I'm also going to put this at a nine.
1: Yep. Yeah, I, I, the thing that was holding me back from all the way was that it isn't like as purely sexual or plundery as Quaid can get. But the smirk, I mean, the smirk is, yes. you know, effectively your last image, but it is like... I don't know. I I feel like the Gordo in this because it's not the real Gordo Cooper. I mean, it, it it's further away from from Gordo than I think probably like Scott Glenn Shepard or or Ed Harris's John Glenn, because like the Gordo here is is almost like sort of the child of America almost, and like there is it does seem to be the the sort of like birthing you know evocation when he's launched up into the starlight and the the light like an ebert says in in his review like evoking or maybe somebody maybe it was kale or something like evoking the star child of 2001 but like i think that's definitely it yeah like just that that dawning light but the it's and i did want to note
2: how much john glenn and Keir delay look alike
1: that was like really striking in that moment um yeah anyway continue this is a refrain that's not in the book the who's the best pilot you ever saw routine where he says well you know you're looking at him you know, in the movie, he he smirks that way up until the moment when he's on the verge of maybe achieving that. And he's suddenly humbled by remembering the distance he's come between all the dead pilots on the wall at Pancho's right. to here at this this sports arena, just being given haunches of meat and being told like, well, we got you a house here and we're going to get you a deal on a car. And in that moment, he can't, he doesn't want to trumpet himself and he's trying to describe that distance. And then you know, you can see like kind of that knowledge kind of go up with him and like be washed away by the moment and, you know, the cynicism is gone and it's the joy of the achievement and that sort of process, like that is the most audience insertion you can really get is I think maybe Gordo's like, we're going to kick ass because we're America and then you're kind of humbled by how far the trip is in the movie. Well, and also I,
2: I think a sense on Gordo's part that this is his role of the seven he's supposed to be this he's the braggadocio guy i also wanted to note and i have a clip of this they're at this presser and um john glenn is doing his you know john glenn thing and then gordo breaks in to talk and it's always interesting to watch an actor playing a like civilian who i mean he's on a you know in this movie he's on a civilian civilian an actor playing a non-actor reading lines badly or um, mm-hmm. not being natural on the mic. And he's good at that Möbius of line readings in this clip.
0: Uh, you know, I'd like to uh, second some of the things that Mr. Glenn has said here today. And I think that we are all very, very fortunate that we have been, uh, should we say, blessed with the talents that have been picked for something like this. And I think that we would be most remiss in our duty indeed if we did not volunteer for something that is as important as this is to our country and to the world in general right now.
2: Which just goes back to what you were saying before, like that they had this Dual role, A, the actual dangerous job itself, but then these roles that they were cast in by military and as a PR. And that is definitely something that you see him kind of remembering or falling back on in that moment when he's like, Well, I'm the best one you ever saw. Like, well, does he think that? Yes and no. But is he saying so because this is his lane among the seven? Maybe. Anyway, Quaid yeah. does a good job with it. It's more nuanced than it might sound like.
1: I think ultimately, like this, the spirit of the role plays so much to the actor he's been up until that point and, and who he's going to become. Like, I mean, Kaufman. In the the thing that you and I were reading, the um, oral history of this, like Kaufman was having trouble with the camera on the audition. Quaid's like, Ah, oh, my my roommate had one of these. I know how it works. And then gave this like lights out audition that didn't record at all because he didn't know how the camera worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of feel like like Kaufman just sort of saw the energy of him and was like you can carry Being this sort of like adolescent spirit of a country here. Yeah, and, for sure. He's right
2: Yeah, and if you think about it, like I can see You could switch Scott Glenn into this role and it would work. Okay, but you can't Like I don't think you can switch quade out into one of the other roles like it had to be this guy yeah so you're a nine as well
1: yeah i think i mean the fact that he can't go full he can he can hint at uh sexuality with nurse merch who is apparently um a woman who was killed in a helicopter accident in new york the actress i was looking that up i was like jesus what a weird movie yeah she was Um, also in the tubes okay two people who were involved in this movie fell to their death the parachutist and who doesn't make it into the final cut but who is supposed to simulate Jaeger's punching out of the, uh, the F1 uh, whatever. Right. Like, anyway, just a lot of plummeting to this cast. <laughs> a um, lot of plummeting. Oh, God. Next time on Quaid in Full, it's the last episode of the season, and we're putting on our thinking wigs to see how the mixture fares for Bill on his own. In the meantime, waddle very carefully over to our show notes and maintain an even strain by following the podcast on Twitter at Pod. Wondering when your favorite Quaid join is getting that righteous stuff? Or want to advertise on a specific film or a TV show's episode? DMs are open and Sarah is standing by and ready to say, No Bucks, No Buck Rogers. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet, ignore that heat shield malfunction and orient your craft to sign up wherever you get your podcasts, and rate and review Quaid in full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Go hot dog, go! Man, sometimes they're just such assholes.